Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, those of you that are a carryover from the early service that you didn't quite make it up for, welcome. We're glad you're here. Now you know what the other side is like, so thanks for being here. If you are new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to First Free Church, or if you're watching us online right now, thanks for joining us there as well. As you just saw, we are launching into a new season of the book of Acts for us. Acts is a long book. We've been studying it for quite a while now, and I knew that after a certain period of time, you were just going to get sick of the same video every time and the same graphics. So we broke it up into three parts. This has always been part of the plan, and now we're entering sort of a, a new season here where the church is about to experience a lot of division, a lot of challenges, and we're going to see the roots of that today in our passage this morning. So we're calling this next chapter Troubles in Churchland because we just came out of the new foundation. Things are exciting. Lots of people are coming to Jesus. It's great. The church is growing. And now there's going to be some struggle. And we're going to see what that struggle is, how the apostles and the other church leaders dealt with it, and how we can learn from that as well. Before we get into that today, and we'll be in Acts chapter 10, by the way, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, go ahead. I want to let you know that last week we had an awesome prayer service here. And uh, I don't know if you got to be a part of it, but everybody that did, man, it was just incredible. And as a result of that, a ton of people wrote down prayer requests, put them on cards, brought them up and put them in one of two baskets. One was for private prayer by our prayer team and elders and staff. So we have all those. And the other basket was for that plus being posted on the prayer wall out in the lobby. And so if you walk out after the service today, you will see that there are, that, that wall is just covered in new prayer requests. And I want to encourage you today or sometime this week or next Sunday to spend a little bit of time at that prayer wall, get a pen or something, and there's a spot where you can mark your initials and put a date on there for when you prayed over it. And I would love to see that wall covered not only with prayer requests, but with the church family praying for those prayer requests. And that way, anybody that, that put a prayer request up there can know, oh, wow, these people have all prayed for me one way that we can be caring and praying for each other and see the visual result of that. If you missed out on that, there are other prayer cards back there. You can add yours to the list. That is no problem. I also, along with that, want to thank you for praying for me. I evidently am doing much better because I went a little long in the early service, and that's the key indicator. So just be prepared for that. I'm about 90% now, I would say. Still a few issues here and there. I've got to be very careful what I eat. I'm on certain medication. I've got certain restrictions and what I can and can't do. I've made some changes to things that will hopefully be temporary. And after maybe three to six months, maybe I'll be back to normal. We'll see. But thank you for praying for me. I'm doing pretty well. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. Before we get there, I want to give you a little illustration that maybe sets us up for what we're going to experience and, and will hopefully be interesting. Um, over the last few months, I have done more research into medicine and healing and medications and supplements than I ever wanted to in my life. Trying to figure out what is going on with me and how do I make it better? And it was interesting along the way to learn that some of the things doctors told me to do ended up being the exact wrong thing to do for my specific situation. In fact, for weeks, I was probably making myself much sicker because I was doing the things I was told to do and taking the things I was told to take. And that has actually been the case throughout the millennia with medicine. Medicine has changed a lot over the years. Over 2,000 years ago, about 2,500 years ago, there um, was this physician named Hippocrates that developed an approach to medicine called the four humors. 
And he identified four fluids in the body. There was, there was blood, there was phlegm, there was yellow bile, there was black bile. And I'm sorry, we're just going there today. I know, don't worry, lunch is in like an hour or an hour and a half, depending on how good I feel. So you will get there, don't worry. And, and we'll stop talking about this in a minute. But these four fluids he identified and he thought that it was the balance of those fluids that were the cause of a lot of illnesses people would have. And, and then there was another guy, a Roman physician that came along later, Gallon, and he said that not only did you have those four fluids, but they were tied to four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And they also played into four temperaments that people had. So he had these whole, all these theories around these four uh, humors, these four fluids that your body might have. And this led to a number of medical procedures that we would not recognize today. If an illness was caused by the imbalance of these fluids in your body, then it stands to reason that if you've got some kind of an illness and we can just determine which fluid's responsible and whether it needs to go up or down, maybe we can fix that. Like a little lever. We got four levers. And, and so if you had a headache, that was probably a sign that your blood was too high. You had too much blood in your body. So let's just take some of that out and that'll make your head feel better. You know, and maybe they did a little experimentation and it kind of worked in some cases. So they're like, okay, well, that must be right. Uh, pneumonia. That was another solution for pneumonia. Let's take some more blood out. Um, phlegm is a little harder. You can't easily take out phlegm. So to get rid of that, why don't we give you some poisons and then you're, you will get rid of all the phlegm you can. And this was the dominant theory of medicine for over 2,000 years, for, for a longer period of time than us today to when Jesus Christ was walking physically on this earth, this was the dominant theory of medicine. And it led to all sorts of medical problems and issues. You're, you're all familiar with George Washington probably, and they let all the blood out of him trying to fix him. Until a fairly recent time, this is how medicine was practiced. Until, until doctors started studying anatomy more thoroughly, and they learned about the circulation system, and they learned about germs and how they cause illness. And this led to something we would call a paradigm shift. Paradigm shift is a term that was coined by a philosopher, Thomas Kuhn, in the 90s, actually, relatively recently, to describe when we have a whole set of assumptions and, and preconceptions that we bring to something, and then it all gets turned on its head because all of our assumptions turn out to be wrong and we learn new information and suddenly everything has changed. This happened with astronomy, with uh, Ptolemy's system that got overturned by Copernicus. It happened with physics and Isaac Newton had his ideas. Some of them were pretty good, but then Albert Einstein comes along and everything kind of shifts because he brings this new perspective, new research, new understanding. There's a paradigm shift and everything changes. And that is what we're going to see in the text today. We're going to see, and I, I wanted to start it out this way because I I don't want to just read over this and miss the massive shift that is happening here and how this struck Peter and his companions when they observed this shift. Peter's going to get a front row seat to a paradigm shift, and he's not going to cause it, but he's going to discover it. He's going to discover this new thing that God is doing. And, and remember, at this point, Peter's been through a lot in his life. He's about to experience something that's going to shock him. And we saw a little taste of it last week or no, two weeks ago, actually, when John taught on the first part about this chapter. So let's do a little bit of review. I know you all remember exactly what John said and all of the details of it, but just in case there's somebody new, let's go back and cover what happens in the first part of Acts chapter 10, because it's important to understanding what happens in our passage for today. There's this guy named Cornelius. He's an officer in the Roman army. 
He's a God-fearing man. Even though he grew up a Gentile, probably you know, pagan family, worshiped a variety of Roman gods, but he ends up learning about the Jewish God and he starts to worship him. He serves him. He praised him. He praised to God. He decides to do good in God's name. He decides to give to the poor and his whole household joins him. And so at one point, God sends him an angel and says, Cornelius, I've heard your prayers. I've seen your good deeds, how you care for the poor. You're doing the best you can with what you know. Now I want to bring you a messenger that's gonna fill you in on the extra details. I want you to go send for this man named Simon Peter. Cornelius had probably never heard of him. You're gonna find him in the town of Joppa. He's gonna be at this specific house. Send some messengers to go get him and bring him to you. So these messengers head over there. Meanwhile, Peter has his own vision. It's about lunchtime. He's getting really hungry. And in this vision, a cloth lowers down with a bunch of animals on it. And you're thinking, okay, good, there's some food. But the problem is all those animals are unclean. Jewish people can't eat them. And I wanna take a pause in the message right now to talk about a total sidebar that I think is worth understanding because it's one of those things that we sometimes get tripped up on when we read the Bible and we go, why is that in there? So today, let's talk a little bit about why would God have restricted which animals people could eat in the Old Testament? And we can actually use that as sort of an analogy for a lot of restrictions in the Old Testament that we don't follow today. And you might wonder why. Why are they there? Why would God give that restriction? Why would he take it away? What's the point to that? If it seems arbitrary, it can easily make us think, well, is there anything to this God? I mean, he just kind of gives these instructions willy-nilly and they don't mean anything. Until you dig into them a little further and you start to see, well, maybe there are some good reasons for that. So I spent a little time on that this week and I wanna share with you three reasons why I think God might have restricted which animals the Jewish people could eat under the old Mosaic covenant. The first reason is fairly simple. God's laws for the Jewish people were designed to set them apart to make them distinct, to make them different in some way. And so this was a way for them to demonstrate their allegiance to him, to show that they're trusting him. Even if they maybe don't fully understand the reason for the restriction, the fact that God gave it, the fact that he's seen them through some difficult times and brought them out of Egypt and done many wonderful things for them makes them think, okay, we better follow what he says, even if we don't completely understand it. It's not all that different from how I work with my kids. My kids don't always understand the rules that I give them, but some of those rules are really, really important. And even the rules that aren't as important are still important for them to follow because they're not always gonna know, is this a dangerous line I can't cross? Or is this just a minor thing that dad still wants me to be consistent on? I have to be consistent with them and making sure that they follow the, the rules and restrictions because they're not always gonna understand how dangerous is this one to break? And so they need to learn to trust me. They need to learn to obey, even if they don't fully understand. Sometimes right away, because this could be a dangerous situation. And that's a training thing that has to be built in through the course of parenting so that when there is that dangerous situation, which we've had a few, their, their first thought is gonna be, I'm gonna obey and I'm gonna ask questions later. And that's an important thing to develop. And many times people are like that. We don't always understand why. But if we believe in a loving God who cares for us, who doesn't just give us restrictions for no reason, then maybe there's a reason we don't understand and, and it would be wise for us to follow and, and hope we find out later what it was. Here's the second reason. The second reason is we know today that diseases can jump from animals to people, either by eating them or touching them. 
And sometimes those diseases don't only hurt the person who ate or touched the animal, they can become contagious, communicable, and spread to lots of different people. And so, especially in these older times where you did not have nearly the level of medical expertise and care we have today, you could have a disease that someone would catch from an animal that tended to carry that type of disease, and it could spread to the whole people and wipe out an entire population. And this happened. I mean, diseases crossed over from animals and insects to people and wiped out groups of people. It's a very dangerous thing. And so maybe a part of this was that the animals that were on the no-eat list tended to be the ones that would lead to more disease. And it's very possible that the people of Israel avoided a lot of illnesses and a lot of plagues that did affect a lot of other people groups that you don't hear about anymore because of these restrictions that God gave them. Now, this leads me to a sidebar on the sidebar, because I had a thought this week, and stay with me, I'm going to take you to seminary for just a minute, and I I hope you'll be as fascinated by this as I am, because this second reason about disease led me to another thought. In theology, there is a concept called middle knowledge, and middle knowledge is the idea that God knows not only what's going to happen, but he also knows all the things that would have happened if other choices were made. So he knows everything that would happen if you did something differently or he did something differently. He knows all the branches of all the possibilities of all the things that will happen and could have happened but won't. That's middle knowledge. It's a way of trying to reconcile God's sovereignty with the apparent free will of people. And this isn't the only way. There are other views in Christianity. There's the view that everything is predetermined that God has already set in motion everything and everything is pretty much fixed. And this would typically be known as fatalism, although there are lots of nuances to that. And so one perspective is fatalism, that everything is pretty much already set and we're just going through it and experiencing it. There's another perspective that some Christians have, which is that God actually does not know the future uh, because the future has not happened yet. He hasn't experienced it yet either. And so he's super intelligent. He can make really smart predictions and he can influence things to change the future the way he wants it to go because of how smart he is. But he's actually going through time like we are, either because that's just how that works or because he's restricted himself to that for our sake. That is a view called open theism. And it's gained a lot of popularity in the last uh, decade or so in different Christian circles. And then this other perspective is often known as Molinism, or this idea of middle knowledge that there are certain things God knows would have happened, but they won't happen because of either his or other people's choices. It's all a way to try to figure out what happens with free will and God's sovereignty. How does that work? And um, I used to be very opposed to the idea of open theism, and I still don't believe in it per se, Um, but I actually think that all three of these perspectives are plausible, understandable views of how God may work. In fact, after doing more research into open theism and some of the people that that teach this, I started to see see where they're coming from. I get it. I don't buy into it, but I get it. And I can see how a true follower of Jesus could say, yeah, from Scripture, there's a case to be made for that. The one that I actually have the most trouble with is fatalism. I, I struggle with that for a couple of reasons, even though that's a fairly prominent view in Christianity. And you don't have to agree with me on this. This goes in the conviction bucket. You know, if you're familiar with our buckets here, this is not a, not a thing, not a hill to die on. Uh, but I do not believe in fatalism for a couple of reasons, one of which is that 
the Bible seems to go against that idea in many instances in very clear ways. Most specifically in Jeremiah and Isaiah, you'll see numerous occasions where God will say, people of Israel, if you do this, I will do this, but if you do this, I will do this. Well, if everything's predetermined, then why give them the illusion of choice? Why give them the illusion of a different possible outcome? He's literally describing middle knowledge there. Only one of these two things can happen, and God has just described the outcome that will happen either way. So that makes me think that probably it's not fatalistic. He's not just manipulating them. He's really giving them a genuine choice there. And there are several instances of that in scripture. The other thing that I point to is the early church leaders like Irenaeus and Tertullian and um, Hippolytus all wrote extensively against fatalism as a Gnostic heresy. In fact, they, all three of them wrote works with some variation of the, of the title against heresies or opposing heresies. And in that, all three of them in the, in the second and third century, so pretty close to the time of the apostles, said, we don't buy into this idea of fatalism. That is not how we should think. And, and my thought is, okay, these guys were not that far removed from the apostles. It would really surprise me if the apostles were fatalists and, and then very quickly uh, everything turned around and they started teaching that it was a heresy. You don't have to agree with me. This is a total sidebar, but it has a point. There's a reason why I'm taking you on this little theology uh, bus tour here. And that is, if you hold a position of middle knowledge, which is kind of where I'm at, that God knows the things that would have happened if other choices were made, then perhaps God did not restrict the Jewish people from eating these animals because of some hypothetical possible danger that might happen. Perhaps God actually restricted the eating of these animals because of a very real plague that would have happened. Think about that, that God knew into the future, he knows what's going to happen or what could happen, and he goes, there is going to be something that's going to wipe out my people if they eat that thing 300 years from now. And so I'm going to give them these restrictions to protect them from all of that, and maybe God protected them from some very real dangers that weren't hypothetical, but actually would have had a devastating effect, and he said, these are the categories you shouldn't eat. And if you believe in middle knowledge... Then you know God seen in the future could look at that and say, yes, I know these people aren't going to follow this restriction. Yes, I know they won't all do it perfectly, but I do know that enough of them are going to follow this that those dangerous plagues aren't going to happen. Is that how it happened? I don't know. I won't know till eternity. But it does, for me anyway, give me a very reasonable understanding of why would God make some restrictions that don't seem to make sense to us sometimes, especially to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. Perhaps if he really does know everything, he knows what danger would happen, and we won't know until eternity what he protected them from. Now apply that to you. What's happened in your life that in the moment seems unfair, unreasonable? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God cause this in my life? And yet, is God protecting you or saving you from something that is actually an incredible blessing in your life? You don't know. But it's a part of faith to trust that in those moments... When bad things happen or when we don't understand, we have a God that's looking out for us and caring for us just like he did the people of Israel. He has a plan even when we don't understand it. Yesterday, I was on my way here for a meeting, and you will recall that last week I used as an illustration the unexpected um, repairs that I had to make on my truck that were quite expensive. Well, yesterday, as I was driving here, one of the tires blew out on the truck. That was not part of the previous repairs. And then in looking at the other tires, I found another tire that has a big bulge on it, which usually isn't a good sign. Thankfully, police officers stopped and helped, tow trucks stopped and helped, and I had a, a, a person on the way. I didn't, 
I didn't want to just change it on my own because I could not get off the road. I'm in the middle of two lane, uh, well, well, five lane traffic, I guess, technically, but two lanes go in one direction and I couldn't safely get under and get my spare by myself. But eventually, police officer stops behind me. Multiple people from this church saw, of course, and stopped and offered to help. Thank you. Very fun, little catch up there. And then once the officer was behind me, we were able to have the protection to go under and take down the spare and take the truck in and get four new tires. So awesome. But even in that moment, I had to think, could God be protecting me from something with this? I mean, this happened on Big Bend Road, going up a hill where there were two lanes of traffic. Even though I couldn't pull off, I could at least stay safe on one side and people could move around me. They weren't happy about it, but they could. And then there was the officer that stopped and the tow truck driver that stopped even before my insurance provided people got there. We got it all taken care of, got new tires on the truck. It all worked out okay. I got here this morning. I didn't have to wake up my kids at you know 5 a.m. to get everybody here because we were down to one vehicle. Praise God. What did he protect me from? It could have happened on the highway. It could have happened anywhere. We have to have that perspective, that approach to how God works in our life. Because maybe sometimes the things that we think are damaging and devastating or inconvenient or unfair in life, maybe our Heavenly Father actually has a plan in place for those things. It's a different perspective. And it's a perspective that honestly has been one of the biggest contributors for me being able to trust God in all circumstances. Now, whatever you think about God's sovereignty, we can agree to disagree on that. We put that in the conviction bucket and we'll find out in eternity. But I think it's important to understand these restrictions that God gave the people were not pointless. They were not without reason. And we may not always understand them. These are theories. But God has reasons for the things that he does. And there's actually a third reason that I want to mention, but it relies on what happens next in the story. So let's go back into the story for a minute because God tells Peter as this cloth is is lowered with all these unclean animals in it, God tells Peter, get up and eat. And Peter's like, "Uh, no, Uh, you told me not to eat those and now you want me to eat them? And God is going to use this as an analogy to show that he is opening the doors to the non-Jewish people called the Gentiles to make it easier to be a part of his family and his kingdom. And he's using these unclean animals as an example of that. And that gives me my third reason, which is it is it's possible that God gave this restriction for this moment or that one of the reasons he gave it, he doesn't have to have just one. One of the reasons was this is going to be an incredible example and it's gonna help Peter and his Jewish companions to understand what I'm doing. If I say, not only am I letting the Gentiles in through this easier path now, but, but here's a restriction that's being lifted to be an example of that. And so maybe that's one reason why God gave that restriction so that this path that God is opening up for the Gentiles would be easier for them to understand and accept because they had an analogy in their own world, in their own culture, to be able to understand it. So God makes a way for Gentiles to become part of his family. John talked about this a couple of weeks ago. All are welcome was the title of his message. And by the way, that was always possible for the Gentiles to become part of God's family. It's just the old way was they had to become Jewish. So they had to go through the ritual purification and they had to become circumcised if they were men and they had to go through the religious rites in order to become Jewish in order to be okay with God. And at this point, the Jewish people, the Jewish believers, that is, in Jesus are still thinking, well, that's probably how this should still go. If you're a Gentile and you want to believe in Jesus, okay, step number one, become Jewish. Step number two, believe in Jesus. And that's what we're going to see this big shift in, this massive paradigm shift. 
that that assumption is gonna get turned on its head and the old restrictions and the Mosaic laws, they're being replaced by something new. And it was a huge change for the Jewish believers in Jesus and it was gonna lead to some problems in the churches, even for Peter. So moving on, Peter has this vision three times. Three times this sheet is lowered with the animals. Three times he says, I can't do it. And God says what? Don't call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter's confused. What could this possibly mean? And then these guys knock at the door and the Holy Spirit tells Peter, go with them. And so he goes with them to Caesarea and they end up there at Cornelius's home. And normally he wouldn't even set foot in a Gentile's home. That's part of the unclean thing. You don't wanna go in there. And yet he says, Peter acknowledges, normally I wouldn't do this. But because of what God just showed me, I know God's doing something different and he does not want me to consider you unclean. You see that third reason there? Maybe that's one reason for the restriction is for this moment so that Peter and his Jewish companions would understand, I'm doing something different. I'm doing something new, but it relates to the old, what you're used to. So Cornelius has all his friends and his relatives there in the house, and he invites Peter to share whatever message he has to share. And that brings us finally to our text for today. That was introduction. (laughs) Verse 34, Peter replies, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. See, Cornelius didn't know much about Jesus. He didn't know the gospel message, but he was worshiping God in the best way he knew how. With what little he knew from Jewish sources, he was praying and he was giving to the poor and he was trying to raise his family to to follow and serve God. He didn't have everything he needed. He didn't understand the good news about Jesus, but he was doing the best that he could. And so God sends him a messenger to give him the rest of the pieces of the puzzle, the rest of the information that he needs to know. And here it is, verse 36. This is the message, Peter says, of good news for the people of Israel, which he's starting to realize is even broader than that, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, Cornelius at some point must have heard some stories about Jesus or maybe right here from Peter because Peter says in the next verse, you know what happened throughout Judea beginning in Galilee after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And then here's the really important part. Okay, verse 39. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And Paul, you've heard me say before, later says that Jesus appeared to 500 people who were witnesses and went around spreading. That's why the movement grew so rapidly because Jesus appeared to 500 people who could say, we saw that he died, we saw him in real life right next to us, we saw the holes in his hands, and we verify this is true. And so they went and shared this with everyone. And then in verse 42, he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his Now, there's a paradigm shift that's happening here. And Peter, by delivering this message in a Gentile home to Gentile people, to a Roman officer, is starting to get a little idea of that paradigm shift. But I want to point something out to you, and that is the old has not been discarded here. 
The old just points to the new. He talks about how this is Jesus who the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. The old is not discarded. The old is replaced by the new, but the old points to the new. And notice how he says sins are forgiven, even according to the prophets. How are the sins forgiven? By sacrificed animals at the temple? No. By giving money to the poor? No. By giving money to the church? No. By doing lots of good things? No. Sins are forgiven by belief in Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. The Christ, saying he's Jesus Christ means he's Jesus Christ the Messiah. It means more than just saying, yes, Jesus existed. It means he existed and he is the Messiah, the prophesied about one, the one foretold, the Savior, the one who came to be the sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. That's who Jesus is. Saying Jesus Christ is a proclamation about who he is as the Messiah. It's not just his name. His last name isn't Christ. There are a lot of people who intellectually believe that Jesus existed, but they don't actually believe he's their Messiah. As often happens, after my issue with the truck yesterday, I ended up in a spiritual conversation with someone I never would have met otherwise. And in the course of that conversation, I learned that this person believes Jesus existed, believes he was the best person to have ever lived, does not believe he's his Messiah. You can believe in Jesus without believing in Jesus Christ. You can believe he existed as a person. The evidence for that historically is overwhelming. Even most non-Christians will admit, yeah, there really was a person named Jesus of Nazareth, and there's ample evidence for that, even compared to lots of other historical figures. But is he your Messiah? Is he the Christ? That's the difference. And it's believing in Jesus Christ. That's how sins are forgiven not through doing any good works. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He generously poured out the spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our savior. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. You know, one of the biggest lies the enemy tells people is that believing in Jesus isn't enough. There's more you have to do to be right with him. Cornelius did a lot of good stuff, lots of good stuff. And yet, what do we learn from this story? It wasn't enough. He still needed that message about Jesus. He still needed to understand who Jesus was. The good things he did were honored by God by bringing him the message that would lead to his salvation. It's belief in Jesus Christ that saves us, not the good things that we do. Paul says in Ephesians 2, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Again, salvation is by grace through belief in Jesus. It's not because of any good we do. It's not because we gave money to the church. It's not because we confessed to some priest. It's not because we took part in any sacraments. It's not because we were able to borrow some of the good from other saints that have more than they need. None of that stuff is what you find in God's word. It's not in the Bible. That's all extra stuff that gets added to it to, to obfuscate and dilute the message about believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now notice though that there is a connection between faith and works. In verse 10 of Ephesians 2, we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. There is a connection there. But very clearly, we see from the story in Cornelius, from Titus 3, from Ephesians 2, it is not works that save you, but because you are saved, you should do good works. In fact, it's an evidence of your salvation if your life is changed so you're doing good. 
the brother of Jesus. James said in James 2, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. The Bible is very clear. Salvation is by faith in Jesus, and it's a gift that God gives us through his grace. No work that we can do. And at the same time, how can you prove that you have faith without showing that there's a transformed life that's resulting in good works? The evidence of your salvation is in a transformed life. The evidence of God doing something different inside of you is that you're going to live differently, not perfectly, but differently. And some desires will be different. And in your journey through life, if we were to chart it on a, a little bit of a map, you're going to have some ups and downs, but generally speaking, it's going to be up and to the right as you go closer to him and you're convicted by the Spirit, and you realize some of the things I used to do I don't want to do anymore, and some of the things that I would never do before I want to do now I'm compelled to do because God is working in my life, and so there should be good as an evidence of your faith. There are lots of people that have an intellectual belief that Jesus existed, but the evidence of a transformed life is something different entirely. And now Peter is seeing that God is opening this up to the Gentiles without the prerequisite of any kind of Jewish rituals. Even with all of his experiences with Jesus and the miracles that he saw and Jesus going into Gentile villages and teaching them and healing them and, and his ministry that was open to the Gentiles, Peter is still shocked by what he sees. Shocked by this new paradigm shift. His companions are too. And so in verse 44, we read, even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. Because up until now, they thought following Jesus is Judaism 2.0. It's Judaism plus Jesus. And now they're starting to realize those aren't prerequisites anymore. In fact, the, the restriction on eating certain types of food has just been lifted. This is a paradigm shift. This is totally different now. And God says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. I'm doing something new. And how did they know that the Holy Spirit had come upon the Gentiles? There was proof provided for them. Verse 46, for they heard them speaking in other tongues, other languages, and praising God. And then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Now, I, I've talked before about speaking in tongues. And I just want to say a brief bit about this because it's in the text here. And, and you know, if you've heard my teaching on this in the past, that I don't believe there's biblical evidence personally that tongues have completely ceased, that they don't exist anymore. If they have, I just don't see clear biblical support for that. And we can agree to disagree on that. That's fine. On the other side of that coin, you've also heard me say, most likely, that I think that tongues had a very specific purpose for a specific time. And this is another example of that. There's a paradigm shift happening here. And it seems like in scripture, every time tongues shows up, and in this book, in Acts in Acts, it's in Acts 2, 10, and 19, there's always a paradigm shift happening. There's always something big that God is doing that's different, and this is his stamp of approval to say, I am in this. Later on, they don't necessarily need this, but right now, this group of Jewish people gathered in this Gentile home, a little scared, a little concerned, wouldn't normally do this, hope none of our Jewish fellow believers see this, need this evidence of God at work to prove, yes, the Holy Spirit has been given to them. And so then you have Peter's response to their actions in the Spirit saying, can anyone object? Any of you object to them being baptized? We've seen the evidence, and of course, no one can. And so they are 
baptized. And there's another little theological nugget I'll share with you as well here, which is about baptism. We've also talked in the past about whether or not baptism is necessary to be saved. And here we see a timeline where you've got Cornelius and his family. They do good things. They help people. Not enough. They need the gospel message. They receive the gospel message. They believe in it. God gives a stamp of approval. They receive the Holy Spirit. They are believers now. They have the seal of the Holy Spirit in their life, and they haven't been baptized yet. And then they get baptized because baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. Water baptism. The Bible uses the term in two different ways to talk about a spiritual baptism that takes place when the Holy Spirit fills you and then a water baptism that takes place as evidence of that in your life. And that's what we see here. And so Peter baptizes this whole household. So what are we gonna take away from this today? What are you gonna walk away from today and say, how is my life gonna be a little bit different? I wanna give you three things. Three things that you can maybe hang your hat on here. Number one, God's requirements are not arbitrary. God's requirements are not arbitrary. They have reasons that sometimes we don't understand and we are wise when we trust and follow even when we do not understand. Why exactly did God restrict the animals for hundreds of years for Jewish people? I don't know. I've given you three potential reasons today, but we know that there are reasons for that. And so we trust God even when we don't understand his requirements in our life, which sometimes do not make sense to us. I don't understand all of his requirements. There are certain requirements that I've preached on in the last couple of years here that I still will say, I'm not 100% sure why that is. But I also don't know exactly why God chose for it to be a fruit in the tree of the garden that was the restriction for them. That seems arbitrary too. And yet there was a reason for it. That's number one. Number two, when God makes a paradigm shift, we need to be humble and trusting. What God was doing at this time with Peter was very different. It was scary. It was changed. The future for the Jewish believers was uncertain. They're wondering, where is this all going to lead? Where is this going to go? And even Peter's going to get wrapped up in some controversy later around this very issue of how welcome are Gentiles into the family of faith and how much should we be associating with them? That's going to be a problem later on in his life that Paul's going to have a little dialogue with him about. It's different. It's scary. And yet, It's a paradigm shift that God is in and God is doing something in. What do the next five years look like for you? I don't know. What is God doing in your life right now? Maybe it's a new thing. Maybe it's a scary thing. Maybe you just got a diagnosis and you're not sure how to process that. Maybe you just lost your job or got a new job. Or maybe you just had an issue in your family that came out of nowhere, just hit you, blindsided you. You're going, how do we deal with that? I look at it from the perspective of the church. And the pandemic that we just went through and how that radically changed what happens in the church across the country and across the world. Over the last couple of weeks, I've gotten to talk with several pastors about it and every one of them saying the same thing. Oh yeah, we're all experiencing that. I'm gonna fly out tonight to meet with a bunch of pastors in our association. I guarantee you this will be one of the major topics of conversation is the church looks different. We can either look back at the past through rose-colored glasses and lament over the golden years, or we can say, okay, God, you're doing a new thing. How can I get on board with what you're doing in the future? And I wanna look toward the future and say, what is God gonna do through all of this mess that we see that causes us so much anxiety and fear and concern? And say, how are we gonna get on board with whatever God is doing? That's number two. Number three, God seems to enjoy radical transformations. You look throughout scripture and it's just what he loves to do. He loves to do it on a group level, on a national level, and on an individual person level. It just seems to be his hobby. 
man. He loves radical transformation. 2 Corinthians 5 says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. God loves the old becoming new transformation. Ephesians 4 says, since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, renew them, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. God loves transformation. Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible, certainly my favorite in Romans, is Romans 12, 2. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Here's my challenge for you as we close today. Maybe... There is a paradigm shift happening in your life right now. And maybe you've struggled with it. Maybe you don't understand how to respond to it. I want to invite you as we close right before we sing a final song to spend a few moments in prayer and talk with God about it. And this may not be for everybody here, but maybe for some of you, God's been working on your heart. He's been drawing you in some way. He's been showing you an open door for something. Maybe it's getting involved in serving in a way you haven't done before. Maybe it's a person you need to reach out to and minister to and care for and love on that you haven't before. Maybe it's an opportunity to come be a part of his family and you've never actually trusted him as Jesus Christ, your savior, your Messiah. And there's this transformation that's right in front of you, this paradigm shift that changes all your assumptions about how things work. Are you gonna be open to it? Are you going to be open to what God wants to do in your life today? Why don't you bow your heads with me for a moment? Just reflect, think. Is there something that God has been speaking to you about? Not necessarily through an audible voice, but you can tell he's at work. His Holy Spirit's at work. Maybe you're watching this online. Or maybe you're here in the room could be somebody watching this two weeks from now that just happens to get it shared with them in a link. I don't know. Father, I pray that you would help us to be open to how you're working in our life, even when we don't understand it and even when we don't like it. God, help us to trust in you. Give us that boldness and that courage to, to face the paradigm shift and the transformation with an embrace of knowing that you love us and you care for us and, and you see what is happening in the future and you have good plans for us, plans to help us, not to harm us, plans for a hope and for a future. God, I pray that you would help us to, to be open to that and to live out that hope that we have in you, Lord. God, if there's anybody here that doesn't have that relationship with you, the belief in you as, as the Christ, as the Messiah, Lord, I pray that you would show them today or this week just how real you are, how much you love them, how much you want them to be a part of your family. And I pray that you would help us who are your followers, the people of God, to represent you well every day because of what you mean to us and how you care for us, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.